Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Heather Ross, a documentary filmmaker whose credits include Girls on the Wall and the television series It Gets Better and Who Do You Think You Are? Her new film, For Mad Men Only, The Stories of Del Close, looks at the life and legacy of the writer and actor who invented long-form improv as we know it, assembling a host of impossibly talented people to create a complex, engaging portrait of a very complicated man. It's available on VOD today and still streaming at Hot Docs at Home, and you should see it. Heather picked Waiting for Guffman, Christopher Guest's improvised comedy about some marginally talented people preparing to celebrate the sesquicentennial of Blaine, Missouri at the behest of an especially ambitious director named Corky St. Clair, played by Guest himself, who recruited Fred Willard, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, Bob Balaban, and half a dozen other very funny people to make it all happen. When it was released in 1996, a fully improvised feature was a huge gamble. Now, it's a Christopher Guest film. And a really fun one. This is someone else's movie. Uh, I think I was like an intern and sometimes my boss at like a Hollywood studio and sometimes my boss would like toss me screeners that he didn't want or or tickets to screen at this point it was tickets because (laughs) I'm old. Um, And uh, you know, we got to go to me and my roommate and I got to go to a screening of this film because he was like, I I never heard of waiting for government. I don't want to see this. So we went and we had like no information about the film and we just like sat there like in the front seat of this like press screening, giggling the whole time, just like fully in tears because it was so funny and so unexpected. And at this point, very new um, because it sort of took this mockumentary form and, you know, was heavily improvised, which none of which I knew, but I was just like, this humor is so weird and so funny and so perfect for me. Um, and then when I was thinking about a good film to talk about now, you know, sort of around, you know, the release of For Mad Men Only, which is, you know, a a documentary about improv. I was like, well, how about an improvised documentary? (laughs) And one that featured so many of the people who were trained by Dell or or had opinions about Dell or were, were in Dell Close's orbit. There is a lot of overlap, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. um it's fascinating. I my experience of it was completely different. It was uh I think a special presentation at TIFF that year. So the fact that it was that visible at the time and that uh, of course that Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are in it and they're just, you know, local heroes to the power of 10. I can uh, only imagine that. Yeah. So it, <laughs> that it was it was absolutely an event here and everybody was talking about it and I managed to miss it. I didn't catch it until the press screening for the theatrical release, which I think was better because I saw it with an audience of people. It was like a radio crowd, people who'd won tickets and they did not know what to make of it. And it was great. It was just, <laughs> they, they kind of recognized everybody and they didn't quite know what was going on. And it was this marvelous sense of what Guest is trying to do, I think, which is just not crack just create this completely preposterous world and give you nothing back. By the time they get to the, my dinner with Andre uh, action figures. It's just oh like, my God. I, that, that scene is incredible. It yeah. just like keeps giving, right. You know? Yeah. And it really is the yes. And thing. And, and I know he shoots for hours and hours and hours and there, there's a, a hundred hour assembly cut or something of everything they do. Um, but back at like 1996 is film. 
they don't have digital to burn. Like every minute costs money. And I, I think that's even somehow more impressive that he would mount this sort of production and not know where it's going. I mean, he had a vague idea. But. That's a great point. Cause yeah, film was so expensive and there's almost like a sense of like mischief and like, you know, we're going to turn the cameras on and just see what these people can do. We're just going to mess around. And um, like what they get out of it is so much better than anything you could have scripted, you know, with that cast, like, yeah, Catherine O'Hara always blowing me away and Eugene Levy and uh, it's, and then they've, you know, they they had the 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 wonderful like Second City Toronto, you know, SCTV stalwarts, and then they threw in like Parker Posey, and somehow that's very seamless. I don't I don't know how they they did it, but yeah, it's a it's a mix of talents that all somehow, well, not somehow they're pros. Of course, they can get on the same page, but even the awkwardness in the in, in the friction of between people who would have this in their bones and who are new to it. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of impressed with that. Like, I know that um, I know that Bob Balaban has been a, a theater guy for a long time and is capable of doing these things, but I honestly didn't know that his timing could sync up with everybody else's as well as it does. It's, totally. Yeah. He's so deadpan. And um, but that's perfect. Everyone is so completely immersed in their characters. Like you like, you know, everyone from Bob Balaban, who's like very you know, somewhat he's on the more realistic uh, end of the spectrum of, of of characters in that film. You know that he, he's sort of um, a little bit of a surrogate for us, just sort of reacting. And then all the way to Christopher Guest as Corky St. Clair, like you know, the most ridiculous <laughs> character you can imagine, um, and yet fully, he's like fully immersed in it. He's fully that guy, and he's like fully. Like looking at it again the, this week, I was like, oh my God, I like this character speaks to me because he he's like this failed artist who's like giving it another shot and he can't, he can't, he can't stop going for it. And even on this like, you know, micro level. And I think that's something that probably speaks to a lot of people who work in film and the art. <laughs> oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and Corky, Corky was a not an original character to this. There was a sketch from Saturday Night Live, the year that Guest was on, with Martin Short and uh, Harry Shearer, and a version of Corky is a synchronized swimming coach. The, the <gasps> bit, you remember it, right? Like, I the, do remember that sketch. That two, sketch was very um, loomed large in my memory. But I, yeah, you're right. It, it, it's not Corky, but it is similar in that it's like someone who is like fully buying in and it's with Harry Shearer, right? Shearer is one of the brothers who he's teaching, he's training to be synchronized swimmers and they are terrible at it. Like yeah. This, this weird pantomime, follow your dream thing. It it was, I think, 11 years earlier. That season wow. was 84, 85 or 85, 86. And you can just tell that Guest never let go of it, that it just kept rattling around in his head and he had to find a way to express that character. You're right. And that is sort of the hallmark of all his films is like somebody who is completely has a completely misguided passion for something very weird and is just going to pursue it to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And with like total heart and seriousness. Um, That's so funny that. Yeah. And, and what he seems to do here too is as a character or as a storyteller, it's the story of someone with this preposterous obsession who ropes other people in. So you get that 
gentle aspect of it psychologically. Nobody's being cruel to these characters, which is, I think, something that happens later in, in Guest's films. As they chase the larger satirical point, the characters start to become a little more, they're not just gentle eccentrics, they're hideous caricatures of whatever it is that they're supposed to yeah, be. Yeah. Um, this one genuinely loves everybody. That's true. And that's very unusual in comedy. And mm-hmm. in, I mean, in general, like, you know, we are all taught that like drama is, you know, conflict and put, you know, you gotta be fighting each other to get something out of it. But um, it's, it's kind of interesting because um, when we were making for Mad Men only, we talked to a lot of different camps of improvisers and there was the Chicago camp out of Second City it was like Bill Murray and John Belushi that was just like burn it out go nuts you know like sex drugs and rock and roll and then we talked to people who were involved in Second City Toronto and um it was like we um we wanted to like be nice people and laugh with <laughs> each other and you know and that was really interesting for me to hear because having sort of bought into the bad boy element of it I was like well you know that the SCTV is as funny as anything I've ever seen. And and you're right. There's something like good natured at the heart of it. And um, yeah, you totally see that in waiting for Guffman. They are, you know, they're ridiculous character. You're laughing at them for sure, but you're also kind of loving them and they are, yeah, they're not, they're not after each other. It's not a, a hard edge satire. Yeah. Well, it's the later ones where people start competing with each other or the characters are competing with each other, like best in show or for your consideration. I think that's where it gets a little more sour Um, just in terms of the way the material plays, because they are constantly, the characters are constantly sniping at each other. And so you just have that atmosphere. There's nothing wrong with that as a comic premise. It works really well, but Guffman for me is the one that just felt like the best execution of his philosophy that he just wants to, watch all these specimens wander around and maybe be part of them. Like he wants to be among them, but you get the sense there. I'm, I'm sure there are moments like O'Hara has a little smile with Willard in one scene where it's just like, no, she's just enjoying herself immensely. And it comes through. And it's these moments where you can feel the energy of the improvisation. I I guessed, guess wasn't at second city, right? Like he, he met everybody through um, national lampoon. If I remember. That's right. I, I I know that he was not a, a second city person, but, um, actually didn't know exactly how he he got to 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 SNL and it does seem to be like either National Lampoon or or, or Second City in, in those days. So yeah. Well he'd already uh, made Spinal like Spinal Tap was he and Shearer went to Saturday Night Live I think like two years after Spinal Tap. Oh. But 10 years before that he was hanging out with Belushi and everybody Bill Murray I think too was part of it on the uh in the Lemmings. National Lampoon Lemmings album. That's 73, 74. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because, yeah, National Lampoon was definitely had like a little bit of a nastier edge, you know, Um, uh, and chaotic edge. So it's interesting that he cut his teeth, you know, sort of with with both camps, you know, both the the hard edge Chicagoans and the Canadians. And yeah, yeah, I guess you kind of see that fusion in his work. Yeah. And came out of it minting his own style, right? Like where now everybody knows what a Christopher Guest movie looks like. We just, like, it has its own DNA. Yeah, he sort of invented a genre around himself, which is, you know, which is heavily informed by these, this ensemble of people he works with, which is is great. That, like, sense of collaboration is, 
yeah, you're right. It comes through like part of the humor is watching these people like surprise each other in real time with the funny little choices they make and the little, you know, flourishes. They, they, they're like, they're making each other laugh. And that's like, just watching comedians make each other laugh is the best to me. I love it. Yeah. It's great because they're the ones I've been accused of this a couple of times myself. And I guess it's just because I'm a, I'm a film critic. I'm an observer by nature that someone says, well, you don't laugh very much, but you do say that's funny. It's like, Why I, do you think that is? Are you, la- are you laughing laugh. on the inside? I think it's because you're trying to analyze the joke while it happens. Mm. You know, like if you can feel it coming or if you can see where something is going, it's so pleasurable. It's not being smarter than the room. It's matching the energy. I think it's figuring out where something is going as it's happening. Mm. And it's just, it's thrilling. Like there are moments, uh, Christopher Nolan movies, weirdly enough, make people feel this way because he structures everything towards that ending. So if you get it, if you're on board, you come out with this epiphany, even though in like half of his movies, nothing actually happens at the end, (laughs) but you leave on a high. It's just like, oh, cool. It's over. But I got it. I know what he wanted to say. Solve solve the problem. (laughs) Yeah. But in comedy, that's building towards a laugh. So if you see the equation, I think you can get to the laugh when it happens even and, and feel like, you know, carried along by it. It's, it's just like yeah, matching the energy or something. For sure. And I think like with live, you know, I, I, my history in comedy was not out of improv. I did not do it. I did not really watch it. I was like, I was into like sketch and stand up and stuff, but doing this film, I watched a lot of improv live, live improvisation, you know, everything from, you know, randoms to, you know, greats. And uh, it is, yeah, it's it's like you're watching, it's like what you just described times 10, because you're watching these brilliant minds sort of see the connections in real time and make draw those connections along with you. And like you're all like everybody in the room is going on a ride at the same time and hoping that it works out because there is that actual element of danger that like, oh, this is gonna go completely off the rails and sucks. So um you know, that that's, and, and that, and first, you know, there are various levels of, you know, um, mysticism <laughs> with comics. Um, but you know, some of them really feel like you're channeling something that's in the room, something that's in the, you know, in the audience that night. I mean, I'm sure it's with, with standup feel, you know, that comes into play too. any performance, you know, it's a, whatever the group of people under that roof in that moment are going to be part of the process in some way. Yeah, the energy of the crowd, the energy of the room. It's the one thing that the film's guest has made sort of deny us because we're seeing the best takes, the best versions. We don't watch anything flop. And it still kind of annoys me that he doesn't make that stuff available. I would just love to watch any 20-minute reel, any random assortment of rushes from one of these films just to see what has to happen before they find the stuff that goes. I don't yeah, know that he is. I would love to see that too. And yeah, I don't know that he's he's made a policy of it, but mm-hmm. it just it just never comes out. You know, any movie is going to have deleted scenes. I'm sure there's stuff that you wanted to use that you couldn't fit into an hour and a half on uh, Mad Men, but it's always so fascinating to play archaeologist after the fact and and pick it apart. Like in this case, actually, going back to Guffman for the first time in a while. I realized it feels a little different now because it doesn't have Jane Lynch and Jennifer Coolidge. Like he hadn't right. finished his repertory company yet. Right. Yeah. It's so it's funny to see. Yeah. It's a little bit of a different mix of people, um, which might be part of why it's a little 
like softer and rounder around the edges, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and how it feels. Um, I mean, I, I think, I know Jane Lynch is a brilliant improviser. I'm sure, I, I don't know how much improvisation Jennifer, I mean, I guess she does it in all the, the guest movies and she's she's fascinating. But um, I know Lynch was trained at, at Second City and, in, and uh, you know, she's, she's fantastic. Um, but yeah, that's funny that he, and so I guess you're seeing him as an artist. Yeah, like all of these films have the same kind of conceit. They're, a mockumentary with a, a cast of ridiculous characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like he is getting more and more sharply into his, um, his vision. So that's yeah. kind of cool to watch. Yeah. It's an embryonic experience now, 25, 25 years later. Uh, that, unimaginable, <laughs> unthinkable to me that we've all been doing this that long. Uh, but, I know. I know. Um, but but I mean, it's cool I, that you mentioned about the, alternate takes and alternate scenes you know in in uh spinal tap because i i wonder if it is like documentary in that you shoot so much i mean too much and you have so many choices to make continually like in way that you know scripted you just don't have so i'm like i know with documentaries for any anything i've worked on there's a million different versions you could have made a completely different film you know Mm -hmm. it sounds like with spinal tap that's the case too. And it's, it's cool to go back to those early versions where there's all versions and see, wow, there are so many other ideas in play and they took this decision and that made all the difference. That's yeah. scary to think about as a creator. <laughs> well, and documentary is similar to a film like Guffman in that you're finding it in the process of making it. Like you start with a general goal yeah, I mean, I'm sure he always knew that Guffman would never show like that, that whole point, that's going to yeah. be the, the victory at the end of it. But yeah, I don't know that he had much else. Like the musical numbers would have had to be scripted. Sure. Um, and they're written by McKeon and Shearer and, and Guest, which are, it, it's so strange to me that those, that the, that trio have been making music for 40 years now and that all of it is great in some weird way um, from, from Spinal Tap to what was the, the, the group that they play in um, uh, in A Mighty Wind, which is the other one of his that I absolutely love. Where it's Yeah, just, it's, that was great. Yeah, and I it's all about- the name of the ensemble, though. The Woodsman? Was it The Woodsman? Oh, yeah. The <laughs> Journeyman or something? <laughs> the Journeyman. No, The Journeyman is a newer group. Um, some of the super ego guys are in that, I think. Group. It might be The Woodsman. But they, I mean, they appeared on Saturday Night Live- as a group, that was my first experience of them. And it was so clear that it was McKean and Guest and Shearer in, in makeup. But they're <laughs> the same characters they played 20 years later on In a Mighty Wind. It's it's wild that they don't let anything go. And that they still work. That the ideas that Guest has rattling around in his head still play. Yeah. And that it was, I mean, he did a satire of a kind of music that is not popular anymore. And probably most people, even when the film was released and really have any familiarity with the like 60s boho folk movement or whatever so it's funny and you know I think Mike Myers talked about that with um Austin Powers like they're doing very different film but like doing it you know both of those are like satires of you know they're 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 satires of something that exists but you don't have to know the thing that's being satirized to 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 find it funny which I think is really hard to do yeah well the the filmmaker has to know it in and out right that's 
I think that's it. Like if Mike Myers wasn't a complete Peter Sellers apocrypha fanatic, he would never have uh-huh. made half the stuff he's made. But uh-huh. because he's well, and, and Austin Powers is really more about the swinging London spy stuff, Michael Caine uh-huh. movies. But but he wants to be Peter Sellers secretly, like or not so secretly, and he, he keeps <laughs> he's been chasing that dragon for decades. Yeah, you don't need to know that the Quincy Jones music that plays at the beginning of Austin Powers is the theme from a terrible Canadian game show called Definition. Oh, uh, my God, is it? it? Or it was used as that theme throughout the 70s. And, and Myers and I both grew up in Toronto watching that show after school and listening to that song. Oh, and when it pops up, again, it's that kind of thing, that that electric connection of, oh, my God, he went for the Definition theme, but it's so perfectly 60s that why wouldn't you? A joke even without, if you a, didn't grow up with that or, you know, there's something that it, it catches on to that you're like, oh, I get the idea of what is being referenced here. And I love it. Yeah. It's about conveying the attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's got to be something human underneath the, the like what, you're, you know, like you might be satirizing. Yeah. Swing in London or, you know, Michael Caine or James Bond, but there's something there's something human in the character that is like a little more universal, you know, um, just somebody being super out of place. And, and, you know, again, I mean, and that's a very guestian thing too, just someone being completely out of place and completely buying into a world and a persona that is not our world. Yeah. I mean, in Guffman, it actually works for Corky because they're carried along with his dream partially because it is bigger and larger than life. And it unlocks the theater kid and everyone, but also because he has, you know, been, been and come back. Like he's been into the world and nobody wants to seem like a hick. So they're all going along with this preposterous dream because it would work in the big city, according to the one person they know who's been to the big city. It's, it's also a perfect pre-internet movie, right? Because there is absolutely no sense of a culture outside of Blaine. Totally. Yeah. You couldn't make it now. And that it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of like a little love letter to like small town life before all that. Yeah. Cause they are they're Yeah. They, he's like this total Pied Piper. They just have to take his word for it. And yeah, he's not right. <laughs> no, no, he's not right. But it is like, of course, everybody who sees it, whoever wanted to mount the elaborate, you know, Lord of the Rings adaptation in their high school cafeteria that never Uh, happened because they broke the first lamp and never got to make a second lamp. Yeah. It resonates with everybody. I I was not one of those kids. I was never a theater kid, but I knew a lot of them and I know that they love this movie. Really? Uh, Just because it, it captures their passion. Nobody seems to notice that the passion is misplaced. Well, isn't it all? <laughs> That's fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so few of us who, you know, <laughs> go out there and and make a play and 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 have success with it. I mean, and that's something that's sort of bittersweet in the movie too. Is like, can you be happy making uh, comedy or making art or making anything on a, a small town level for like a little community, like? it's like there's is it enough to like get all these like weirdos like swept up in your vision like 20 weirdos you know and uh as opposed to like having a a hit movie or whatever you know like is it the same impulse you know I think it is but you know there's always that part of it that us that wants 
Guffman to show up and, and transport us into the next level. Right. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because then we will be recognized, right? Yeah. Like our, our genius will be seen. And Corky is so quietly dignified in wanting to be seen. Like you, you can watch. And, and I, I think guest doesn't get enough credit as a performer for these films no, where he's, he's incredible. Yeah. He's, you can see him getting excited and throttling back over and over and over again, because he's trying to keep people on his, like he's trying to keep people on a level that is slightly deferential to him, but Corky really wants this. And the second somebody else's excitement comes close to matching his, he has to pull back because otherwise they'll see that he's like, you can just see so much of this in his eyes. He'll, he'll be found out. They'll see how badly he wants this and he can't show them that it's just, I'm in awe of his skill. Like, and, and knowing that that's going to register too, the way these tiny little moments play and he's confident the camera will catch them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I mean, it's a type of humor that we see a lot more now, but then you really didn't like this, like kind of like these like small, awkward moments that are hilarious. But then, yeah. you know, and in, in, in that time, comedy was louder and bigger and faster. And, um, you know, to just let something play super awkwardly um, or, or tiny little things like, you know, when she's like, he's going to be the next Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> Just seeing people catch themselves and what they're trying to like, how they're trying to show themselves off versus how they really are. I mean, that's something we we see a lot now, but you know, he was, it was sort of pioneering it. Yeah. 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 Have you seen uh, his, his conventional movie, the big picture, the film he made like six, seven years earlier in I guess, 89 no. it's sort of gotten lost. Andy Kindler picked it for the podcast about two years ago uh, in the before times. We actually recorded it in the studio together. And oh. it was a great chance for me to revisit that film and see all the things that guest played with and abandoned. Cause it's about a film student played by Kevin Bacon who gets hired to shoot a studio picture and just gets ground up by the process and rediscovers oh. his own independent impulses. But um it's it opens with three or four student films and they're all just elaborate parodies of a specific type of student film and it's the sort of yeah the blu-rays around somewhere i think mill creek released it and it's a it's out there it's it's it hasn't been fully lost but guest just moved away from it and never did anything else like it but it feels like this test run for a certain type of satire and he's great at it like he's he could have kept on doing those for decades but he wanted to do this instead he wanted to find a way to make improv movies that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, he, he found an even iffier or <laughs> riskier yeah. way of making comedy. That's, I got to hand it to him. That was, uh, that was probably a hard, hard step to take, but a really cool one. Wow. Deep cut. I got to go back and see that. Yeah. It's, it's something, um, this is in Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Martin Short's in it as an agent. Oh, wow. Um, JT Walsh is there as a, as a studio suit. Michael McKeon has a, a small dramatic role as uh, Bacon's best friend, who's also a cinematographer, the guy he stabs in the back in order to get a better cinematographer uh. over the course of the movie. <laughs> and again, it's the same thing. Like there's a there's a generosity of spirit towards our hero and the people who are trying to make art versus the people who are just trying to make money off of other people making uh. art. And it kind of lines up. It like the two films are nothing alike beyond an attitude. Yeah, I, I find that really fascinating. And Guffman also, by virtue of having 
Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, Fred Willard, just people who are funny sitting still. <laughs> you know, the moment they're introduced, you just lean forward a little bit to see who they are and what they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since they're wearing matching leisure suits. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is like, again, um, the people who are, are finding Catherine O'Hara through Schitt's Creek and Levy too, I suppose. It's just like, yeah. where have you been? They've been this good all along. They've been, yeah, that's so great. That's so cool to see people coming, you know, super young people like discovering them and like, hopefully they, yeah, they go back into their repertoire. Cause it's just like, you know, 30 years of, of 50. I mean, ah, if, you, if well, you want to think about second city and SCTV, like we're Jesus. coming up, it's 45 years now yeah, uh, wow. that, that wow. those episodes were filmed. And they've just been inventive like the whole time. Like, how do you do that? That's crazy. Yeah. I I, I did a piece on um, Catherine O'Hara's roles for now when she won her second Canadian Screen Award for Shit's Creek, maybe. But, oh, no, there was a retrospective or something um, at, at TIFF a couple of years back. And it was amazing to watch this string of comic performances in the 70s and 80s. And then she hit a point where I think just after... Beetlejuice, where suddenly people didn't know what to do with her because she was mm. so good. And, the, mm. and she was so specifically good in Beetlejuice at that sort of spiky, weird thing. And she just made Heartburn the year before where she was Meryl right. Streep's best friend, right? And those two back-to-back, I think, broke casting for her for a little while. And so she was in the weeds. And then suddenly Guest rescues her and just puts her in a movie that shows people what she does again. That's like, so you know, interesting like, to think yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she, I mean, she was so, another version of the world would have been like, she gets all the big Hollywood character roles because yeah. she was so good in, in Beetlejuice and, and Heartburn. And um, yeah, it's, it's funny though, how comedy, you know, and you know, the mainstream of comedy is not always in sync with what it's best comedians are doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, you can just look at all of Guest's films to to see it, right? Like the ebb and flow of his of his rep company, the people yeah. in it that keep coming back even after they become wildly successful again. The people who want to just keep playing with him, yeah, because it's like, fun. Yeah, yeah. It's well, like I Jane- if he's a quirky St. Clair type. <laughs> he's a little bit of a Pied Piper of like, we're going to do this thing. I wrote six pages of an outline. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, I can absolutely believe that. I can see that there are filmmakers who can make a phone call and make something happen. You know, hire somebody, cut through the agents and all the other stuff and just say, look, I want to make a movie with you. Let's do it. Let's figure the scheduling out. And then I can also imagine that Christopher Guest just sends out a group email (laughs) on a Thursday and says, I want to shoot this thing in a week. Who's up? Yeah, I, I got an idea, guys. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a little bit of Del close there too. Like not, not Del might be a little more quirky in some ways and that he's a definite Pied Piper of like, who has a great idea that, you know, most other people can't see where it's going, you know, that improv could actually be a thing, but he manages to convince like a core group of really good, really wacky people to, to believe in it. And it kind of takes off from there. It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, the people that you've spoken to in, in for Mad Men only, it's it's like literally a who's who of everyone who's ever made me laugh. You know, yeah, sort of thing. <laughs> me too. 
one um, of the great joys of making it. Yeah, I, I that's the other thing too about shooting a documentary and not knowing where it's going. Like how much footage, if I had Bob Odenkirk telling me stories about being a kid and going to interview Del Close with a tape recorder, I don't think I'd let him leave. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very distinct image of like tagging along with him as he like walked out the door, just like <laughs> very amateurishly just wanting to keep chatting with him. Um, yeah, I've had experiences was- like that as a journalist too. I mean, because he was such a, a joy and, and you know, he had that great story. Someone was like, you know, true masters know they only need, need to bring one story to the interview. It just has to be the right story. And that is 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 what he did. Um, but yeah, it was. And a lot of people seem to have that a little bit of a like a experience with Dell or an experience with improv early on that just seared into their memory and became like a little bit of a defining feature, you know, maybe it has to do with how young they all were and, you know, how new this art form was and and how wild Dell was compared to, you know, probably a lot of people that anyone knew in the Midwest or in in Toronto, you know, but, um, Yeah, it definitely, he like seared into the right people (laughs) and they just sort of kept, kept it, kept metastasizing. Yeah. I'm, I was trying to think of when I'd first heard of Close and it was probably me noticing a picture of him on the wall at the second city in Toronto in like 1986 or 87 and just thinking that that guy's really striking. Wow. He was up there, huh? Yeah. I know yeah. he was up in the Chicago rafters, but there there were photos on a wall in the old place anyway on Lombard Street. You know, like every second city has the has the photo wall, and he was there somehow. And I only know that I'm I can only be sure of this because then a couple of years later I saw the blob, and he's in that, and it's like, oh, that's Del Close. So I knew who he was at that. Point. <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of the people in that cast did not enjoy Del Close, <laughs> Catherine O'Hara, and. Martin, Martin Short. Short. Yeah, you could Dave say. Thomas, yeah. Mm. Although Dave Thomas gives him a lot of credit. Dave Thomas was very clear-eyed and he was another great interview. And I feel like he was very clear-eyed and saying, you know, Dell could be brilliant, but he was like 90%. I didn't want to deal with him. But he did give him credit for having the idea for, for um, SCTV. Yeah, it's it's really, it's kind of remarkable to look back and realize how much of SCTV was an accident, like just like the timing worked out close was exiled up here. So that happened with that cast at that moment, but all of them came from Godspell. There was this legendary Uh production of Godspell, almost all of them. And um, again, that would be one of those things where if anyone ever discovers footage of that, there's like a a summer of soul scale documentary to happen about that show. Everyone on that show went to the moon yeah Victor Garber it's it's amazing the people who didn't go into SCTV or Second City even and who still became meteoric out of it yeah Radner yeah 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 of course and all of these people who like that who whose lives and livelihoods were impacted and affected positively by close who who like there's a point in the documentary where you deal with the fact that everyone else was more successful than he was ultimately, or that's how he felt anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that spoke to me a little bit because, you know, there's some, something 
you know, for all of us, we have the idea of what we are and what we want to be in our heads. And then we have like the reality of kind of what we were built for. And that's just something I really love seeing explored on film. And he, it's something that he just totally embodied. You know, I think he was in his mind, he was like the leading man or, you know, that he was, you know, but nobody else saw it. You know, he was the, the madman in, in the shadows who's like lighting the fire under the leading man to make that guy and that girl more interesting, you know, and, and, and more honest. So it's, yeah. And I don't know if he, there are definitely times when he seemed to really embrace the reality of, of who he was and what his strengths really were. And then there are other times when he seemed to, to fight it, but it seems like toward the end of his life, he he's like, I'm okay being the mentor, like the behind the scenes guy. Yeah, I think someone comes right out and says that he was he was good at being a guru once he allowed himself to be that way. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe it was Tim Meadows. Um, I think so. Yeah, but he, um, but yeah, yeah, he would also still you know grumble and he'd go out for pilot season every once in a while. Like there was a, somebody told the story of um, showing up. I think maybe Matt Walsh like showed. I don't know exactly who it was. Um, showing up for uh, improv lessons, being so primed to learn from the guru, the master um, of improv. And he was like, you know what? I'm not doing it this, this year. I'm going to LA for pilot season. (laughs) He's just like, you think of him as this like high art, you know, art as comedy guy. And then like, he's like, no, I'm just going to try to get on, uh, you know, Simon and Simon or whatever. Yeah, no, you could have felt like it's striking how much he looks like or how much Steven Root now looks like him 20 years ago. And it's like, yeah, he could have played those parts. He could have gotten those older, older, cranky barfly roles. For sure. And he did get some of them, you know. He, yeah, like the blob. He's he's great in the blob. And yeah. he, uh, you know, he's got his cameo in Ferris Bueller and uh, the um, he, he's got some great little character roles. Yeah, he could have made a whole career out of that. He totally could have, um, but then he would have had to actually show up and, um, you know, he was interested in exploring ideas maybe more than anything else. You know, he was interested in using his students as like a laboratory Petri dish for ideas about comedy and, and improvisation. And um, I got that's spoke to him more. Yeah. Or maybe and, just didn't want to get out of bed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the culture is better off for the path he took. It's just that, you know, you have to be the person who reconciles yourself to that at the end, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, that you, it's a trade-off. You can't, as much as he tried, you can't live 10 lives. You, you have to, you know, you end up getting one. So there's a lot of paths we don't take and yeah, it, I guess everything conspired to, to put him in that role, including many, a bad drug habit. <laughs> Sure. Other difficulties, but Char- character is destiny and all that. But I mean, like by the same token, the Albertsons are not going to stop performing in Geffman after the thing flops. They're they're never going to stop. And I think he was the same way. And that's where the whole kindred spirit thing connects to to Corky again, right? Like he's he's encouraging these people to do the thing they want, even if they're not necessarily going to make a living at it. Oh yeah, I I, I love that. Like I love community theater. And I love people who are like, you know, doing their art, you know, as travel agents or, you know, whatever, you know, like it's, it's, I, 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 and I love that aspect of the film that, you know, these, you know, this is like 
checker at Dairy Queen is now like transformed by the experience of the art of theater. And um, it's, and I think it's true. Like, I think there's, you know, uh, it used to be in the old, old days before mass media that like people learned to perform for each other and people like took music lessons and performed for their you know like art was something that everybody kind of did you know or they sang in bars or whatever and you know um and now we have this thing where the performers are over there and they are gonna they're the experts and they get to do their thing and we just watch but you know I think part of Dell's philosophy and improvisation in general is like everyone can and should do this and if you you know are uh, working at Trader Joe's or whatever, like you might, you know, it's, we want to hear from you, you know, and we also want to see where it takes you back into your own life. My thanks to Heather Ross, whose excellent new documentary for Mad Men Only, The Stories of Del Close, arrives on VOD platforms today. It's also still available to stream at hotdocs.ca through September 30th. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Heather on Twitter at SincerelyHR, all one word, and you can find Waiting for Guffman on demand pretty much everywhere. Oh, also, I was wrong about the name of guest Sheeran McKeon's folk troupe. They were, of course, the Folksmen. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now Streaming newsletter. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year... If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave us a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. They're pretty good. Stay home. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot if you can. I'll see you next time.